welcome to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. I'm your host, Christine Sufchuk, and joining me today we have Dr. Sabendu Day. Good to be here. And today we're going to be talking about bradycardia. One of the most common calls that we get is about abnormal vital signs, including a lowered heart rate. But how can you be sure when a nurse calls you about a kid who has a low heart rate, whether or not that's something you should be concerned about? First, let's talk about some of the most common etiologies of bradycardia. I like to use the mnemonic slow beats to help me remember these etiologies. The first letter in the mnemonic is S, which stands for side effective medication. We see this a lot. Some of the more common medications that cause bradycardia in children are guanfacine and clonidine. These are commonly given to patients with ADHD at night to help with sleep. These are typically associated with hypotension because they are alpha-2 adrenergic receptor blockers. Other medications that cause bradycardia include beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, organophosphate toxicity, opioids, and if you're in the PICU, dexmetomidine. The L stands for lights, short for electrolytes. It's important to make sure that your calcium, magnesium, and phosphorus are normal. While these don't always lead to rhythm changes, they are important for optimizing cardiac function. O stands for other. Reflux can cause bradycardia because when babies reflux into their esophagus, that leads to stimulation of their vagal nerve, leading to bradycardia. Apnea and bradycardia of prematurity is directly related to an immature nervous system. As the babies feed and grow and their nervous system matures, this should go away by approximately 44 weeks corrected. W stands for well child. The most common cause of bradycardia is a well child who has a sinus bradycardia. B stands for block, more specifically AV block. AV block is a difficulty with atrial conduction traveling from the atria to the ventricles. Basically, there's a disconnect between the atria and the ventricles. Children who are at higher risk for AV block include kids who have cardiomyopathy, myocarditis, a history of a septal defect repair or other cardiac surgery, an infant of a mother with autoimmune disease, particularly lupus and Sjogren's syndrome. In these cases, it's thought that the maternal IgG actually attacks the fetal conduction pathway in utero. What's kind of interesting about these kids is that sometimes they're born with complete AV block, but other times they develop complete AV block and present around three to six months of age. If you have a child where you suspect AV block is the underlying condition causing their bradycardia, the first thing that you're gonna wanna do is obtain an electrocardiogram. When you obtain an electrocardiogram, the things that you're gonna wanna look closely at are the P waves, the PR intervals, and the RR intervals. First degree AV block can be a little bit tricky to pick up because it really only has a prolonged PR interval on the EKG. Otherwise, the EKG will be normal and there will be a P wave before every QRS. Second degree AV block comes in two flavors. Second degree type one is what we otherwise call Winky Bach. And some of you may remember the little rhyme that goes along with this, which is longer, longer, longer drop. Now you have a Winky Bach. Basically what that means is that the PR interval becomes progressively longer and eventually it becomes so long that the conduction between the atria and the ventricles 
doesn't get fully through and a QRS complex is dropped. Second degree AV block type 2 occurs when you have P waves that occur regularly, but the QRS complexes are dropped randomly. So the key here is that the PR intervals are constant, but occasionally the conduction just doesn't get through and the QRS complex is dropped. These kids may need a pacemaker. The rhyme for this is, if some P's don't get through, then you have a Mobitz too. Finally, third degree AV block is when you have P waves that are regular and QRS waves that are regular, but they have absolutely nothing to do with each other. So if you draw a little dot over every P wave on the page, you'll notice that they occur at a regular rate. And if you do the same with the R waves and kind of track those QRS complexes, you'll also notice that those are occurring at a regular rate, but the two do not have anything to do with each other. So the ventricles are beating on their own and the atria are beating on their own, and there's really no coordination happening in that heart. Those kids will also need a pacemaker. E stands for elevated ICP or intracranial pressure. The thing that you want to look out for is Cushing's triad, which is hypertension, bradycardia, and abnormal breathing. A stands for anorexia, or other cause of malnutrition. Eating disorders and malnourishment are fairly common causes of bradycardia in an inpatient pediatric unit. Typically, these kids have a physiologic adaptation to starvation in order to conserve calories and reduce afterload. Often these kids will be very thin, sometimes hypothermic, and sometimes even hypotensive. T stands for thyroid dysfunction. Specifically, you'll be looking for hypothyroidism or low thyroid, which can cause bradycardia. In contrast, hyperthyroidism or high thyroid can cause tachycardia. S stands for sick sinus syndrome, which is caused by abnormalities in your sinus node or your atrial conduction pathways. This is more common in kids who have had a Fontan repair. Okay, so when you are called overnight for a kid who has bradycardia, what are some of the first steps that you're going to take? The first things that I'd want to do is make sure that their other vital signs look okay and assess their perfusion status, making sure they're warm and well perfused. And what vital signs in particular are you paying a close attention to? Specifically, their blood pressure and their respiratory rate would be things that I would look at. It's also good to look in their chart and see why they're admitted to the hospital. If this is a child who is admitted for, let's say, refeeding syndrome, then you might suspect that the cause of their bradycardia is related to their underlying medical diagnosis. So Dr. Sufchak, how low is too low? Well, as long as the patient is warm and well perfused, we can see heart rates that are pretty low. Young, healthy, athletic kids will have heart rates routinely down into the 40s sometimes, and as long as they look good, they feel good, they're well perfused and no symptoms, we just let them be. So the question becomes, when you have a kid who is a little bit sicker, what are some of the things that you're going to think about doing as far as your workup? I would consider getting an electrocardiogram or an EKG and specifically looking at things like whether or not they're in sinus rhythm looking at their QRS, and looking at their QT interval. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that the child does not have any AV block, and you want to make sure that they're in 
sinus rhythm. What specifically do you look for in EKG to make sure that someone is in sinus rhythm? You'll want to see if there's a P wave before every QRS complex, as well as looking at the PR interval. So I know we just named a ton of different reasons why pediatric patients can present with bradycardia, but one of the main points and takeaway points in this episode is definitely that well children will get sinus bradycardia, particularly when they go to sleep, and oftentimes there's really not a whole lot we have to do about it. Some of the reassuring signs are if they're warm and well perfused, if they're arousable, and if their heart rate improves when they're aroused, and specifically if they do not have hypertension or abnormal breathing to suggest elevated intracranial pressure. This is MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. I'm Christine Sufchuk. And I'm Sabendu Day. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline, which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.